morning. I'll set that aside if I have another mic. Our passage today hits us with the question, why did Jesus get so mad at a, a fig tree that he curses it and causes it to shrivel up and die? Like, I think that's an interesting thing that takes place in this. And I, I, I can imagine getting a little annoyed at a fruit tree. We had a house with, uh, our first house we bought had a good sized yard and we had about four or five apple trees. And at first I thought, oh, this will be great. I'll get to eat apples from them. But um, mainly it was just, just a way of drawing bees and, and really annoying when you mowed the lawn and and it, it never seemed to produce an apple that I was excited about eating. Like, a, you know, the between bugs and, you know, never, mostly got really tiny ones. And uh, so one of the youth group kids, his dad was a farmer who ran an orchard. And I asked him, you know, what do I got to do to get apples from this tree? He says, it's really simple. Um, go buy a chainsaw cut down the tree, sell the wood, and then, then come buy apples at a grocery store. He said the amount of, of pruning and, and pesticides you'd have to use to get good apples from your trees, it will never be worth it. And, and so I didn't do that. Um, but anyways, why does Jesus curse this fig tree? What's, what's going on in this passage? When the first rule of understanding the Bible, when you're confronted especially with something that seems perplexing and confusing, is get to the context. See it in the passage in a broader way and try to figure, see if that helps you understand what's going on. And so that's what I want to do this morning. We're going to look at the context. And, and so back up to the beginning of Mark 11 is Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. Now Jesus had reviewing the geography, he had done most of his ministry up in the northern part of Israel in the area of Galilee. Um, Nazareth, Nazareth was up there, and um, so you always hear him talk about the Sea of Galilee and on the boats. That's about 80 to 100 miles from Jerusalem in the south, and most of his time was up there in the north. And in fact, in Mark, this is the only time it talks about him coming to Jerusalem. But we do know from the other Gospels, he, they had come down to Jerusalem a few times before. But this arrival is different. When Jesus arrives and he's coming for the Passover feast, he arrives in a way that's making a statement. And he, he arrives... Riding on a donkey. Mark, in this earlier in Mark 11, makes a big deal about how he had procured a donkey. The son, a young donkey that had never been ridden before and had um, commandeered it. You know, it wasn't one they owned, so that he could ride specifically into the city. Now, why would he do that? Is it because, like, Jesus was starting to get tired of walking? No. It's because of Zechariah 9. Zechariah, the prophet, long before Jesus, that says, Daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous, victorious, lowly, meaning humbly, and riding on a donkey on a colt, meaning a young donkey, the foal of a donkey. So 
there's this prophecy. It was seen as a prophecy of, a, of the Messiah. So they saw this is the Messiah would do this. Right so Jesus is making a statement, arriving in the way he does. He is the rightful king. And the crowds pick up on it. As he comes in, the, this earlier in Mark 11 is, is what we, we talk about this on Palm Sunday a lot of times. Because the crowds started getting palms and laying them at the feet so that they wouldn't have to touch the ground with his, his feet. And they started cheering and, and it's, it's, it's a pilgrimage time at, at Passover. And so there's huge crowds and they start saying, Hosanna, which means save us. They're thinking of him as the Savior. They talk about the kingdom of our, our father David. Or specifically in Matthew's version, they say he's the son of David. Which again is a, a, the Messiah who's come. A descendant of David was, was the Messiah. And, and in short, they're, they're thinking he's the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus has fostered that by the way he arrives. It says in Matthew's gospel, Mark tells us very, keeps it really short. Mark just gives you the basics. But in Matthew, it talks more about the effect. And it says the, the whole city was stirred. And they all ask, who is this? And the ones with him say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, from Galilee. So that happens on this Palm Sunday. And what does Jesus do immediately? It says he goes to the temple. And it says he begins to look around, seeing all that's taking place at the temple. He, he surveys the scene, right? He's, he's checking it out, but it's already late in the day, so he doesn't stay there. And instead, it says they go out to Bethany, which is just a few miles outside the city. And um, it's just like, a, it's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And in fact, Jesus had friends who lived in Bethany, Lazarus. And Martha and Mary live there. So it doesn't say it in Mark, but I suspect that that's where he, he might have stayed. So he's out there. So the next day is when our text started that, that Bruce read. And that's when they're heading back into the city, heading back to the temple. And on the way, Jesus sees a fig tree in the distance. It has plenty of leaves, so it's in leaf. And he's hungry, so he goes up to it thinking maybe he'll see some figs and eat something. But it says there's no fruit, and the reason was simply there was, it was not the season, right? It was too early in the season for the figs to, to come out. Nevertheless, Jesus looks at that tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He curses a tree. And the disciples hear him say that. Um, nothing happens in that moment. You know, it doesn't burst into flames or anything. But so they hear him say that. And then they keep going on into the city proper, heading into Jerusalem. And this time Jesus goes right to the temple and he is intent. He came with a plan in mind. And it says he begins to overturn the tables of all the money changers that they saw the last time they were there. And he starts to drive out those who are selling animals and to get them out of the temple courtyard. It, it goes even, and John's gospel, it even says he took a whip and, and started, you know, 
I mean, he's, he's using, they're, they're kind of established there. You can imagine how hard this would be to get them all to move out of there. This, this is their, they're trying to make money, right? Um, but Jesus is intent on getting out. He won't let people carry things throughout the, the things. He won't let them bring their stuff back in. He drives them all out of the temple courtyard area. And, and when he's asked why he's doing this, he says, this house was designed to be a house of prayer for the, all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The temple was designed to be a house of prayer or worship for, for all the nations. But, but that's not what it's being used for. They're, they're just there to make money. Someone takes word to the chief priests and, and his people, and they come up. Now, Imagine you're the chief priest. You're in charge of the temple. You're the one that should really be deciding, you know, whether this is true. And, and so you would have a few different ways. How would you respond to Jesus? One thing you could do is you might say, Jesus, you are absolutely right. We, we had been paying attention. We didn't realize how many marketing people, how many salesmen are there, and this has become chaos. We should have made this change long ago. So thank you, Jesus, for drawing our attention to this problem. Is that how they respond? No, no, not so much. Now, they could have gone the other route and just immediately had Jesus arrested and say, hey, this is our temple. What are you doing here? You know, you're bothering people. And they could have had Jesus arrested. They had temple guards. They don't do that either. And the reason it says is that Jesus is so popular with the crowds that there's no way they can get away with that. But instead, they decide they're going to plot. They want to find a way to take him down. They're not happy what he did, and they're going to find a way to destroy him. This is one week before Easter this event takes place. So um, their plan will come, come out. Then they go back to Bethany for the night. And the next morning they're coming back into Jerusalem again. And then what do they see? Peter is the one that notices, hey, Jesus, isn't that the same tree that you cursed? And the tree that was full of leaves is now shriveled and dead and withered. And they're like amazed. How did you do this? So here's my contention, and it's rather simple. It wasn't about the fig tree. The fig tree was just an innocent bystander. Maybe you get all sentimental for this tree. Oh, poor tree. You know, it, it shouldn't be expected to bear figs out of... It's not about the tree. It was about the temple all along. The way the story is framed with the curse and then the noticing that it's withered and what's in between? The temple. The, the clearing out of the temple. And what Jesus is doing is he's making a statement and he's giving his disciples a visual illustration of it. And he's he's saying, this temple may look alive, it may look impressive, but at truth it is barren. It is not producing the fruit for which it was meant to produce. And it will come to an end. It will be cast aside by God, just like this fig tree. And so Mark, it's interesting in Mark 
in his gospel doesn't just tell us that's what Jesus means. Uh, he uses that technique of framing it in, in between the two to, to make that. I, I don't know if we have a literature teacher in, in the congregation or not. If, if there's some fancy name for, for how Mark is doing this and showing this, but, but when you see how it's framed and within it, that's, that's how the Bible often works. It wants you to discover rather than just always telling you what to, what to, how to see it. But the point of it being, the temple is not bearing the fruit for which it was intended, and its time had come to an end. And so what I want to do is think, is, is help you know the story of the, the God's temple in Jerusalem. And so you can understand better what, what that's about. The temple was designed to be a meeting place between God and his people. That God's presence would come upon this one place so that, so that the people of God could come and worship and encounter God and ultimately to even invite others outside of God's people to see it as well. It started actually in the time of Moses, not with a, a building, but with a tent. The tabernacle was the mobile temple. It was set up so that they could be torn down, and it was as, as the Israelites were following Moses in the desert, and so they had this tent of worship. And it says that God's presence would hover over it in, in the form of a cloud so that they knew God was living right in their midst. And in fact, it would lead them around at different times. That lasted for hundreds of years, but later when David had taken Jerusalem to be the new capital of his people, he wanted to build God a more permanent place. And God said, told no to King David, no, you're not the one to build the temple, but you can set it up so that your son Solomon gets to build the temple. And so that's what happened. Solomon built the first building temple, same floor plan as the tabernacle. And, and so we get what's known as Solomon's Temple. A gorgeous place. It had it is made of wood, but everything was like coated in gold. It just showed the wealth and grandeur of all. But more important, in First Kings eight, it talks about how God came upon that temple, and it says, "And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord." And Solomon's temple stood with God's presence as a way of the people knowing God is in our midst. And moreover, its grandeur and glory brought people from other nations to come and hear about and learn about the God of Israel. Well, it's a long story from here. But over time, the temple becomes corrupted. The priesthood becomes corrupted. In the end, they're, they're using it to worship other gods in that very temple dedicated to the Lord. And God withdraws his presence. Far away in Babylon, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision from God, and he sees the glory of the Lord rise up from the holy place and move through the city, move out of the temple to, to the east of the city, and then it goes further and leaves the Jerusalem and goes up to the Mount of Olives. 
God withdraws his presence from the temple. Soon after that, the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar come and destroy that temple. You think it's the end, but it's not. God does something amazing. His, the Israelites were sent out into exile for, for 70 years. God brings them back. The Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians, and the Persians allow the Jews to, to reclaim their homeland, reclaim Jerusalem, and even to rebuild the temple. Now, when they rebuild it, it's not nearly as impressive as it had been under Solomon's time. It's, it's, it's just a place at that point. Um, but for hundreds of years, they had their temple back. And then they decide to, to make it grand again. And there's the temple is rebuilt just before the time of Jesus to be more impressive and grand than ever. And this time, though, it's done by an interesting person, Herod the Great. And he was the evil king who tried to kill baby Jesus, if you know the Christmas story. And so he's the one, he loved building projects. And he, that's how he, that's one way he tried to curry favor with the, the rest of the Jewish people. Is he, he said, I'll rebuild the temple and make it more immense than ever. And so lots of stone and, and all these things. So it's in Herod's temple. Sometimes it's called. It's the second temple where Jesus had, was referring to. And it had a, a different floor plan than the old temple. It had a separate courtyard for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, um, um, for the other pe- people from other nations. There's also a separate courtyard for the women. So only the men were allowed to go into the, the main temple area. Um, so where do you think all the money changers... And all those with those noisy, smelly animals were in. Do you think they're in the main part where the Jewish men can go worship? They were almost certainly in the temple of, or the courtyard of the Gentiles. The courtyard, the one place where non-Jews were allowed to go, they filled that up with all the people selling stuff. All the animals trampling things and all the stuff that goes with the animals who trample things. The one place that, that, that someone who w- was curious about God, the Lord, could come and, and see him, they made their place full of chaos, noise, mess, smell. That's what Jesus saw when he surveyed the scene. And that's what Jesus came to put an end to and to try to undo. The, the religious leaders, the high priest. The, the Jews had the purpose of bearing the light of, of the glory of God to the nations. They lost sight of that purpose. Instead, they saw people coming from all over to this amazing tourist attraction that they'd made, and all they saw were dollar signs. A few chapters later in Mark 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they, they're in the temple, and they're, they're just like, because they all come from Galilee. They don't get down there that much. And they're like, Jesus, isn't this temp- temple magnificent? And he says to them, it won't last. Not one stone will be left upon another. And in 70 AD, the Romans would fulfill that. During the Jewish rebellion against Rome, the Romans would besiege Jerusalem. And when they took it, they would destroy the temple, knocking down all those stones and those fancy buildings 
and the temple would never be rebuilt. I don't know if you've, I've not been to Israel, but I, I, maybe you're familiar with the Wailing Wall. It's the place where they go put the little slivers and notes. That's not actually part of the temple proper. That's the part of the wall that was the foundation underneath the temple. That's all that's left. And do you know what's on the temple mount itself? A mosque. Interesting. What does God have in mind yet? Um, the age of the temple had ended. God had a new way of relating to his people. So why is, why was the age of the temple over? What, I want to hit four truths. First of all, the animal sacrificial system of the temple was obsolete. Much of what took place at the temple had to do with the sacrifice of animals. People would bring their sacrifices, and that would be this idea of your, your animal dies for your sins so that you're forgiven and right with God. The Son of God came to do once and for all what those animal sacrifices could never really do in the first place. He would give his life to pay the, the guilt and penalty for the sins of all people. And he would do that on the cross. In Hebrews 10, it talks about how the sacrifice of animals was an annual reminder of our sins. It, it had a purpose in that God had used the animal sacrificial system to teach about the reality of sin in our lives and how it had to be dealt with. But God did not delight in the sacrifice of animals. That wasn't really his, his goal, but he had to find some way to teach people about, about the need for a sacrifice. And ultimately, it would be through Jesus. All those sacrifices were pointing ahead to the Messiah who would come. His life would pay for our sins so that we could be right with God. There's a second truth. Now that Jesus did give his life, through him, we can have a direct relationship with God our Father in heaven. We don't need a hierarchy of priests or um, any in intermediary between us and the Father because Jesus is the only one. He can give us access. So when we put our faith in, in the Savior, in Christ, and we decide to follow him, God is with us. He lives inside of us. And he's in our life. And we have peace with him. We have access to him through Jesus. It says in Ephesians that Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through Jesus, we both have access to the Father, God the Father, by his Spirit. The Spirit connects us. But I love how it says to those far away as well as to those who are near. In other words, to those who grew up in church, who've learned all about this all your life, as well as those who maybe never heard this message before. And this is all new. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've, you've come here today and you're still learning about, about what all this means. Either way, whichever one, we both get to God the same way. We both needed Jesus to, to give us access, to make that connection so that we can have God in our life. And know that he is near you in this moment. That this very morning, if you've never taken the step of saying yes to Jesus, 
and, and coming into that relationship with God that you were made for. Know that he is near you this morning and you can talk to him and he will, he will do that work in you. He's already paid the penalty for your sins. You don't have to worry about that part. You just need to put your trust and faith in him. That's what we have through Christ, that direct relationship. Third truth, God does not live in buildings built by human hands. So often we associate church with the building, do we not? And I loved how Dan prayed, you know, he's praying for the trustees, that our goal for this, this building is to make a, a place where we can come and, and gather together and worship together, and that's important. It's, it's good that we have this place looking well in that. But it's not a building where, where, where God lives. In fact, if, if a meteor would strike and take out the building during the week when we're not here, and, and we, you know, we all came, we would still be the church even if we didn't have a, a place to gather in. The church is the followers of Jesus who love him and are in fellowship with one another. Um, Stephen was a Christian it, right after Jesus. In fact, he was the first Christian to be killed for his faith. And he was talking to people about the temple. And, it, and he, you know, he kind of did talked about what, how, how God lives, and he's saying this is not the building where God lives. He says, God, the Most High does not live in buildings built by human hands. And instead, he says, God made his presence known through Jesus, and you all put him to death. That wasn't a very popular way for him to say that and it, it didn't you know but but it was true that we find God not in buildings but in in through Jesus and through our connections to one another um, a couple years ago Katie and I did a mission trip in the Czech Republic and we'd done our work and we had one a day in Prague Sunday it was kind of our rest day and so all the young people on the the trip were sleeping in and I'm of such an age where I can't sleep past seven anyways. So nod your heads. Yeah, I see some of you out there. Um, so I went, I, I left the apartment, let them sleep in, and I went and found coffee somewhere. And I ended up in front of this building, St. Ludmilla's Church, right in Prague. Can we get the picture up? There we go. Beautiful, magnificent, magnificent sanctuary. And it's Sunday morning. So I, I was sitting on a bench out front drinking coffee with my Bible, and I watched as person after person went up to that front door. You can see it right there, and um, it, was, it was locked. It was closed. No one came. No one. And so I just kept watching people, and I wonder, what's going on? So I was so curious, I looked it up later and found out that they took July and August off from worship. Like, you know, because, well, it's, I guess it's a big deal. It's a little like upstate New York, right? Everyone travels for July and August. And so it would be like, we say, all right, we're not, no worship at all. We'll just, let's go on vacation. And I just was astounded that this awesome building, but the doors were closed. God has opened the doors, not through a building, but through his people. Through people that are learning together to love God and love one another in the name of Jesus. And so that leads us to the fourth truth. God has set up church congregations as lampstands where people can find Jesus, as lights. So rather than just one temple where his presence dwells, God establishes congregations of people. It, you know, in 
sometimes one to a city, or but actually more per city, that he gathers people together in a congregation of people who are committed to God, but also committed to one another, who grow together in faith as they walk with Jesus in, in their day-to-day life. And that becomes the light in their community by which others can discover the good news of God. And that's what we do. We're called together by Jesus. And so we, and, and we belong to him. We teach the scriptures. And we try to learn together how to put it into practice. We, we worship and sing and give our praise to God. But we do it with our doors open. So that if God is speaking to someone and wants to lead them in, in and be with us, the doors are open. And we, we, we have a posture of receptivity. If you're looking for a place to worship God, we invite you to be with us. We, we share in the sacraments and the Lord's Supper together. But we do it as an open table. You don't have to be a member of this congregation to share in the Lord's Supper. We invite you to partake and, and get connected to God through it. That's the intent of the lampstands, the lights that God sets up. And the question, though, is what happens when the, a congregation stops bearing fruit? When a congregation forgets its mission, of bearing the good news of Jesus Christ in the community. When it gets so focused on the building or running its programs or, or making the budget that they lose their heart for God and they become obsolete. That happens in Revelation chapter 2 to a specific congregation. One of the lampstands, that, that's where that image comes from is the church as a lampstand. And it, it Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. I encourage you to look at this later. And he says to them, I know your works. I know the good works you're doing. I know your toil. I know your endurance. I know how you, you got rid of a false teacher. You got your teaching straight. But there's still a problem. There's one thing I have against you. You have lost the love you had at first. It's possible for a church, even if they're doing all the right things, teaching all the right things, if they're not filled with the love of God, loving God and loving one another, to miss what God is doing, to fail to, to, be, to become obsolete. And Jesus says to them, repent, or I will remove your lampstand from its place. Doesn't that sound a lot like May no one ever bear fruit from you again. So, people of God, it is vital that we not just do the right things, teach the right things. It is vital that we learn and grow together how to love God and love one another. Because he has placed us here for a purpose, to bear the light of Jesus Christ within our community. We have our mission statement on our website and different places. And we got talking about this today, this week at staff meeting and, and other places. And it says, we are a community of Christ followers who love God, love people, and want to help them follow Jesus. Does that sound like what we want to be about? Are we ready to, to kind of go after that as a congregation? My goal in, in doing the sermon series was to, to, to know more about what Jesus was like so we could start to figure that out. And, 
Can I, can I though, offer just a, maybe a slight revision of this to say it a different way? And that is learning how to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. Is that on the next slide? Learning how to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. I think we still have to grow in, in that process of loving one another. I think that's hard. And, and I know for me, I'm, I'm, God is still teaching me, how do I love God, how do I love others? And so I think part of what we do is together we're learning how to do that and put this into practice. And I think that maybe just a little simpler way to say it, learning how to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. East Glenville Church, I, I challenge you, I challenge us, can we make this what we're doing? Can we make this our purpose for how we're to operate within our community and within, with, with each other? And I want you as each individual, I want, I want to issue one challenge to you. Would you ask Jesus to teach you how to love people both inside and outside the church? Ask Jesus to teach you how to do it. Let me pray. Father, I believe that you have set up this congregation, this church, for your purposes. And I believe you desire that we would be a lampstand, a light in our community, a place where when people are searching for you, you can bring them here. So, Father, we ask that you would teach us how to love one another, how to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we could be that lampstand in this place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.